Friend, you got to be bold to talk about someone's looks, Christian. <laughs> Good morning. Um, you know, sending Christian to y'all was like sending a piece of my heart. Um, I've had great friends in my life, um, but Christian is one of the closest friends I've ever had. And so I hope and trust, and if he's not, don't tell me, uh, I hope he's blessing you as much as he blessed me, because it makes it easier to see him not where I'm at. I'm excited to be here this morning, but I must admit, I was a little confused at first when Christian invited me. I wondered, why, why me? You guys have excellent preachers here. They could preach this text. I wondered, if it's a guest preacher, when you try to get someone a little bit better, why would you settle for someone like me? And then Christian gave me the text, and I wondered, man, how have I hurt Christian so much <laughs> that he would assign me chapter 56 in a 66-chapter prophecy? How am I supposed to sum up the entirety of this book? I only have so much time. But I was determined, so I went to my shelf, and I grabbed my Isaiah commentaries down, and I opened them up on my desk, and I started pouring myself out into them and looking at them, studying And as I opened one of the commentaries, I discovered the true reason why it's me here this morning, preaching this text this morning. It's rare you get that kind of clarity in life. On the front page, one of the commentaries stamped on it was from the library of Christian Moscoso. (laughs) So clearly your pastor concocted this whole series, picked this text, invited me just so I would bring back his commentary. So... If this sermon this morning is a dud, I want you all to just take solace in knowing that your pastor got his book back. All right, Christian, there you go. All right, without wasting any more precious time, let's jump in. There is a huge industry around writing and selling books with the secret to church and to missions. These men, these women are casting, and in ways they're selling a vision of what They think we should be going and how we're supposed to get there. But this morning, let me tell you, church, the church does not need visionaries. We don't need visionaries in mission. We need people who have a deep zeal, the vision that God has already casted. So let me ask you this morning, are you stirred by the vision of God? We don't need well-meaning, new, trendy visions on making the church relevant. We don't need something new, a new way to package ourselves. We need an ancient vision that was settled in the heart of God before the foundation of the world. We need one that is assured through the one who holds all of creation and history in his hands. You know, visionaries will cast a vision of where they think we should go and how to get there, but they can't assure that we're going to make it there. But the vision that the church holds fast to is one where a God has said, it is so, so it is so. We know we're going to get there. I think Isaiah is the perfect place for us to see the vision of God and have our lives this morning altered forever. It has the power to transform your priorities, your finances, your relationships, and your future. It's a scary thing approaching a vision that's cast by the God Almighty. And my prayer this morning is that something would happen to every single one of us today. That from Scripture, from the vision of God, we would get a settled and deep jealousy for the glory of God. What I mean is that we would have a zeal, a a godly jealousy. That we would have a zeal that is informed by God, 
for the glory of God and the good of all peoples. That is what we want this morning. So here we are, 56 chapters into a sprawling prophetic book. I obviously can't take us through the entirety of the book, but let me highlight some important things for our text this morning. What is the message of Isaiah? Well, it might be just as simple as his name. Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation. What an amazing message to have, right? What a great name to have. Man, I wish my name meant Yahweh is salvation. Who is Isaiah writing to? That's a great question. He's a prophet to Judah, but at times he's writing to all of Israel. And he's writing to people in three different time periods. A little confusing? Well, he's a prophet. Chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah is writing to people in his own time. That is in the late 8th century, that is B.C. Chapters 40 through 55, Isaiah is writing to the Jewish exiles in, the Babylon, in Babylon during the 6th century. That means Isaiah is writing to a group of people that are hundreds of years ahead of him. He's writing to them about things that are happening to them and what God is saying to them. And then we have where we are today, chapters 56 through 66. Isaiah is writing to the returned exiles and the subsequent generations of God's people. And he's writing to them about their present situation and the inevitable future that is set before them. And that future is still set before us this morning. When trying to sum up the entirety of the book of Isaiah, the ESV study Bible puts it this way. The whole book portrays God's plan for Judah as a story that is headed somewhere. Namely, towards the coming of the final heir of David who will bring light to the Gentiles. Israel was created for this very purpose. Does that sound familiar? I hope it does. Last week, I listened to the message, Genesis 12. It says this, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. God has created a people for a purpose. Now, how is God going to do this? How is this plan going to be accomplished? Well, Isaiah consistently talks about God purging his people of its sinful members and setting up Israel as a beacon of light for the whole world. The study Bible goes on to say the purpose of Isaiah then is to declare the good news that God will glorify himself through the renewed and increased glory of his people, which will attract the nations. All of this, the purpose of the book, this inevitable future that's cast before them, all of this sounds like a vision to me. God's vision. A summary of what I think is the thrust of this vision is found in Isaiah chapter 2. It's one of my favorite sections of all of Scripture because of the beauty of the imagery. I'm just going to read from verse 2 through 5. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You hear the inevitability of that? 
The nations are flowing to the house of the Lord. And it's a difficult flow, right? Flowing goes downhill. And, and this is the house of the Lord on the highest mountain. And yet the nations are going to flow towards God. Because God is that attractive. The attraction of our God is too great. And God is doing something. We see it in this passage. We see it in our passage today. God is doing something. And in verse 5, there's the exhortation. Let's be a part of it. Oh, house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. So let's look at this vision from God cast in Isaiah chapter 56. How will he accomplish such a vision? It starts, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. The Lord tells his people to keep justice and do righteousness. Why? Because his righteousness and salvation were soon to be revealed. The people of God are to herald the coming of God's righteousness by living in a way that reflects it. We are to proclaim, not just with our words, but our very lives with righteousness and justice that God's righteousness is coming. So we're intended to be a community and Israel is intended to be a community that lived justly towards others, righteously before God. That's right relationship with God and right relationship with others. But Israel had become something else. Their religion became devoid of justice and righteousness. They practiced the substance of God's laws and his commands, but they were missing the essence. Verse 2 mentions a very specific example. They were profaning the Sabbath. We know this because in chapter 58, two chapters later, God calls his people to turn back to honoring his Sabbath. They weren't working on the Sabbath. That is the substance. So they had that right. They weren't working, but they were spending that time. They were spending it on their own pleasures and idle talking. What is the Sabbath for? It's to rest from our works and regularly trust that God will provide it's a liturgical rhythm in our lives. It's a seizing of striving. It's a weekly sit down and trust the Lord. And we need it. And it proclaims something. But it's also a rest that's busy. Busy with what? Delighting in the Lord and showing mercy towards others. Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, gives us many examples of this. He heals on the Sabbath. He spends time with sinners on the Sabbath. Kent Hughes summarizes by saying this. In other words, the Sabbath was a weekly dress rehearsal for heaven. But if the Sabbath was a dress rehearsal, the Israelites were reading from a wrong script. They spent the time not reflecting heaven, but reflecting their own earthly desires. So here we have an example of God's people following the substance, but not the essence of God's commands. Again, in chapter 58, Isaiah calls them out for their fasting. He says, you fast and seek after me to try to get what you want. They churn their religion, they turn the commands of God into a way to try to manipulate God Almighty. Think how small they must think of God 
if they can find some right formula, maybe, maybe if I fast, then God will have to give me what I want. Religion seeks to control God in ways like that. But what is fasting that the Lord wants? Verse 6, is it not this, the fast that I choose? This is chapter 58. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. You hear this? What does it remind you? It reminds me of James. What is a religion pure and undefiled? Isn't it this, to visit the orphans and the widows and their affliction and keep one unstained from the world? God wants justice and righteousness. He wants us to live rightly with him and rightly with others. He wants us to reflect his righteousness and his justice, his coming kingdom. God has a vision and he wants his people to be a part of it. We get to be in on it. He's going to call the nations to himself. They're going to come to his holy mountain. So let's be a people who walk in the light of the Lord. The church, Israel, and and now the church is a prophetic community. It is one that speaks of something that is sure, but it's coming. It's not here yet, but it's sure. We are to be a community of people who live in justice and righteousness because God's salvation and deliverance are coming soon. And this is for us this morning. We are to herald the coming rule of King Jesus, a kingdom of justice and righteousness. With our very lives, it's supposed to cry out to a world that that even though we're here in this world, we are not living for this world. That there might be another kingdom going on right now, but it's a broken kingdom, and we are living under the rule of a better king. You know, as we live this way in front of everyone, it is a startling and deep message. When our finances, our values, our time, we spend them differently than our neighbor's. We are saying to them, we have a better hope. We have a better kingdom, and it's coming. Does this stir your heart? Does this vision begin to stir something inside of you? We are to look like something because something is coming. It's ours, brothers and sisters. And so we don't have to live like everyone else. Let me go on the passage. Verse 3, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name. Better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. 
What is happening here? Well, there are two people here mentioned in this passage who represent larger groups, the eunuchs and the foreigners. What does the substance of God's law say about these groups? Deuteronomy 23 verse 1 says this, No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. It goes on to say a few verses later that the Moabites and the Ammonites, foreigners, are to be also excluded from the assembly. Now, I want to be careful here. God's law is perfect. These commands are perfect. These are the Lord's commands. But they were specific reminders of the holiness of God and his specific covenantal love to the nation of Israel. Pagans at the time would bodily mutilate themselves as an act of religion and worship to idols. And the Lord is making it abundantly clear right here, that is incompatible with worship of me. The Moabites and the Ammonites, well, they wronged God's people. And as you heard last week in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord promised, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. So what is the picture being painted in our passage today? They're being invited in. It's a beautiful vision of what God is doing. Notice, notice the words, who has joined himself to the Lord. Like, think about that. They, they've been joined to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we have the advantage of knowing the gospel this morning. And, and I'm just going to say, let's go with that. All right, let's, let's, let's boast in the fact that we know, we know where this is going. All right, is there anything, I mean anything, that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? No, there is nothing. Think of this. When you are united to Jesus Christ, when you are made one with him, the old is gone and you are a new creation. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how far away you were from the Lord. It doesn't matter if the Lord, in here, in the law, a eunuch cannot join the assembly because when they are united to God, when they are joined to the Lord, They are made his people, as are we. Church, is there anyone too far from the arm of the Lord? There is no one. There is no one that you know right now. No one you know in your family, no lost child of yours, no no relative, no parent, no neighbor, no coworker. No one in the world is too far from the salvation of the Lord. If he reaches out and grabs them, they are his just to be joined to the Lord. So the law wasn't speaking about those who have been joined themselves to the Lord, those who have entered into covenantal relationship with God, those who have been washed by the blood of Jesus. Now look at the promises God makes here to these two groups of people who were previously excluded from the assembly of his people. Listen to how redemptive our God is. This is incredible. He takes what they don't have in this life and he gives them far more than they ever could have had in this life. That is what our God does. Look at this. Let's take the eunuch first. Eunuchs could not have children. That's a big deal. That was a big deal in this culture. They couldn't have any children. So who would remember them? Their children would be the ones that memorialize them. They remember them. They pass them on from generation to generation, their kids and to their kids and to their kids. But look what God says to the eunuch who joins himself to the Lord, to the eunuch who will hold fast to God's covenants and do what pleases him. 
one who's truly joined to the Lord, he says this, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I just said those words, but, but they should actually scandalize us because God, earlier in Scripture, is the one who gets an everlasting name. He says, hey, not in some son or daughter's house where there'll be a memorial for you. You'll be remembered by me. Your name in my house. God is giving them something better. God is taking their brokenness and giving them abundant blessing. Look at the foreigner. He is worried that God will cut him off from his people but to the one who joins himself to the Lord. Not just in substance, but essence. He loves God. He serves him. God will bring him to his holy mountain where his people get to dwell with him. Look at the end of verse 7. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Wow. Not only will he not be cut off from God's people, he will be brought as close as possible. He's not just a part of the people. He's brought into the house of God. He becomes family. God takes what we don't have, and he gives abundantly more. So what is the vision of God that we see in Isaiah? One where the farthest are brought near. One where the cut off are grafted in. One where the alone are never forgotten. One where the nations would flow to be near Yahweh. And what is his people's part to play? To live under his rule now. To do righteousness and to, to do justice. To walk in the light of the Lord. People will see it and they'll be drawn to it. Now is this vision passive? The last verse says this, the Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him beside those already gathered. It's God who will gather. He is drawing the lost to himself. So it's, it's, it's all over, right? We just, we get to gather on Sunday mornings. We live righteous and justly in our church Christian bubble and uh, God's going to take care of the rest. He's calling the nations. Sweet. God does it all. That's right. He gets all the glory. He's the one we are all flowing to, but this vision should begin to stir a zeal for God's glory and the good of all peoples in this church. It should stir a jealousy for God's glory. When you read these verses, you should say, this should happen. This must happen. It will happen. And then we get to rejoice because we know God is going to make it happen. But let's not miss out on being a part of it. Basically, basically, what we're asking now is what does this vision stir us to do? We have the clear commands. Keep righteousness and do justice. This is not meant to be done in private. We're not meant to shutter the doors, come in here and be really just to church folk and righteous in here. We're meant to do that everywhere. Every relationship to all peoples. We're commanded to live in this world that cries out, I'm living for another world. But what do we do? What do we do when this vision that we see here is being opposed? What do we, what do, we do when we see that in God's vision is not being matched by the reality of the world we, we see around us? 
when we look at this vision of God calling the nations to himself, his people living in righteousness and justice, and the nations are being drawn to him, and they are literally saying out loud, let's go to the house of the Lord so he can teach us. And we don't see that, what should happen inside of us? I want to acknowledge that this was written to the Israelites, and they had a holy mountain. When they heard that language, they're thinking Jerusalem. It's where the temple of the Lord is. It's on a mount. It's lifted up. And God's saying, I'm going to raise that higher than all the other uh, mountains, and everyone's going to come to it. It was Jerusalem, and that's where the nations were to flow. But actually, before I address more of our part to play, I think it would be helpful for us to jump into a scene in Jerusalem where the perfect man responded to this very vision. It's in Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 16. And they came to Jerusalem, and he, that is Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. This has admittedly always been a weird passage for me. Like as a kid, I loved it, but I didn't know why. Right? Like, yeah, Jesus is flipping tables. I mean, there's, there's two accounts of this. It seems like he did it once early in his ministry and once at the end of his ministry. And, and the Gospel of John in chapter 2, it, it talks about it in the early time. It says he actually formed a whip and drove people out. Like there's Jesus cracking a whip and yelling at people. He's setting pigeons free and flipping tables, money scattering all around. People are running. Oh my gosh, it's that crazy Jesus again. I loved it. But what is happening here, right? Why is he doing this? Well, Jesus is kicking over tables and chasing people around because surely they were overcharging. There was injustice here. It's widely agreed that that this time they were in there, they were money changers so people could change their money out and then they could buy things to sacrifice like pigeons. But they would overcharge and inflate the price. It was exorbitant. It was a hindrance. It was unjust. They were robbing people. Jesus even says, you've turned this into a a den of robbers. But is there something more happening here? There is. Something really important for us to see today. And thankfully, Jesus tells us exactly what motivates him in this moment in the very next verse. He says, and and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Do you see it? He is quoting our passage in Isaiah today. He, this place, the place he's in, it's supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. The way that the temple was designed, it says he entered the outer courts. The, the outer section, that's where they were selling things and the money changers were set up. This was also the place where Gentiles, the nations, were allowed to come. They couldn't go further into the temple. There'd be signs that say Gentiles killed past this point. This outer section of the court was where the nations could come and pray to Yahweh. It's where they could come and be a part of God's family. And what has God's people done? They've crowded the space and they are robbing people. And Jesus enters in and he sees this with the eyes of Isaiah 56. He sees the vision that his father has cast. And he looks at what is in front of him and he sees what is out of place. This is not what it's supposed to look like. 
You're supposed to be practicing righteousness and justice, and you are trading the vision of God for coins. You have turned this place into a den of robbers. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. The foreigner's supposed to come in here and be a foreigner no more. And you are alienating them. And Jesus sees it, and he drives them out. Now, the way I'm describing it might make it sound like it's a flash of anger, that Jesus comes in just like, what? And just flips the tables. But even in the account of John, it tells us he formed a whip. This is a steady, settled anger. This is zeal. This is a jealousy for the glory of God and the good of all people. And we want this in our souls. I want to see the way that Jesus sees. I'm praying that every one of us would see the way that Jesus sees. So the perfect man, who was also God himself, had a deep, settled zeal for the glory of himself and the good of all peoples that was informed by the vision laid out in Isaiah 56. They were profaning the vision of God. This place where foreigners were to come and be foreigners no more, this place where the eunuchs was to have an eternal heritage. Church, do you have a zeal for this vision? Do you have a zeal like Jesus, one that moves us? not one that's content with things being not the way that God says they should be? Do you have a zeal that stirs us? You know, I'm a guest preacher. Uh, when I preach at my church, they know me as a pastor, and so I have trust. You guys don't have that with me. Um, but I hope that you trust your pastors who let me come up here. Do you mind if I, if I may take a guess at what might be hindering us from feeling zeal in this moment? Is that okay with you? Can I just go off script and then guess a little bit? I, as I was preparing the sermon, this just, Lord laid this on my heart and convicted me personally. And I don't feel like it's just for me. What is hindering us from feeling zeal when we approach this passage? I think there's a holiness issue in the American church. And it may not be exactly what you're thinking in this moment. I mean, I might agree with you, but it may not be what you're thinking. Right? Like, there are churches that, that have now submitted sexual ethics that, that are just contrary to God's word. There are churches that don't even trust God's word anymore. There are people who say this is progressive, and, 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 and who knows? It's not authoritative. And, and, and what they're doing is they're bringing their worldview to Scripture, and they're asking God's word to bow down to them. God never bows down to anyone. And so we are to approach Scripture and find us bowing down to what it says. And if you look at a passage like this that Jesus even quotes that is leading him in zeal, and you're finding in your heart, I'm not feeling anything, then we're not bowing down. I think that there's an idol of comfort and self in the American church. And it slides into our hands so easily. Brothers and sisters, I, I, I'm just, I think we might be holding on to these. And until we let go, we won't have room for the zeal for God's glory and the good of all peoples. See, these, these idols, they, they tell us things like, hey, 
I'm just going to be wise. I'll be more generous when I get this amount of money. And then when that money comes, you say, well, I'll be generous when I get a little bit more. It says, well, we can't move there because we've got to think of the kids. It says, what, what, what school will they go to? How safe will we be? What will make us happy? I don't want to leave my comforts. It fights everything to protect you. And it creates a false sense of safety. And, and these two idols, when they're in your hands, they cast a vision of their own. Now, it can have a Christian veneer over it. It can look Christian, but it casts a future for yourself where you're always going to be happy and safe. You're always going to be comfortable. It doesn't really want to take any risks for you, but it's willing to risk other people. Here's an example, right? I, I don't want to share the gospel with them. What if it breaks our relationship? I don't want to share the gospel with that coworker. What if it gets back to my boss? I don't want to share the gospel. Well, okay, no risk to you, but they, they stand before God one day, and you hold the hope that they need. It's willing to risk them. It's not willing to risk self. John Piper one time said that, that a penny, though pretty worthless, and very small, if held close enough to the eye, can blot out the sun. Are we holding these weak, pathetic idols so close to our eyes that we're blotting out the glory of God? Can you see a vision where God deserves the nations, where God is worthy of the nations, and it's good for all peoples that you're willing to let go and smash those idols at the feet of Jesus? I had this view of the rich man coming before Jesus and saying, what do I need for eternal life? He says, Obey, what does the law say? He tells him, I've, I've obeyed all those things. He says, very well, very good. Now just go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And he walks away sad. He is staring God in flesh in the eyes, and he walks away sad. And I don't want us to walk away from this text this morning, a vision from God of what he has for our future and what he's calling us to do and to, to walk away sad. I want us to walk away with a zeal and a jealousy for the glory of God. Amen. I don't know where God will call you. I don't know what he'll do. I don't know if he'll call you overseas. I don't know if he'll call you down the street. I don't know what the Lord's going to do, but, but let go of the idol that won't even let you look at it. Will we be people who will be able to say, as the verse said earlier today, your steadfast love is better than life, so my lips will praise you. Will we be people that say, I, Lord, if I could have one thing, I want to be in your temple and gaze upon your beauty night and day. People who say, like a deer panting by the streams of water, Lord, my soul pants for you. People like Moses who, who say, God, show me your glory. And he knows full well, we know full well, to see God's glory would mean that we die. But to live is Christ and to die is gain. Would we be willing to die this morning and look at the Lord and his glory and say, Lord, will you take me wherever you want me to go? Lord, I want to live for you. You know, I'm, I want to come back to this. I don't know how you guys do ministry at this church, but I'm going to hijack it. 
So when we get to the end of the sermon, I want to pray over this, these idols. And, and if, if you're finding as you approach this passage and you're thinking things like, yeah, no, 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 that's not me because I want this to happen. I want people to go. I want, I want someone else to go. And I might be talking about you. All right? It's so funny how my soul is always so excited for the glory of God when other people go for it. But it really doesn't want to be the one called out in any way. I'll come back to it. The Israelites had a temple on a holy mountain, but God said the nations would flow to it, but, but it ended up not happening in the way we see in this passage, did it? Like nations have gone there, but then the temple was destroyed, and it's no more. And the, the curtain was torn. God's presence has left. And we look at this and we say, well, when is it going to be fulfilled? But God creates his church and says very scary and wonderful things like this in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. We are the church, the temple of God being built with living stones and Jesus is the cornerstone. We are being made into a place where the foreigners come and are foreigners no more. A place where the eunuch has an eternal heritage. And we await our Lord to return with the new Jerusalem. Now Christian, I think, is preaching on missions from the book of Revelations in coming weeks. And I have no idea what he's going to talk about. So I'm not going to talk about the new Jerusalem because I don't want to ruin his message. (laughs) Just in case. But let me say this. Ever since the cross of Christ the nations have been flowing to Yahweh. They've been streaming to the Lord. That's eunuchs and foreigners, the far off and the outcasts, and sinners of all kinds. Prostitutes, pimps, abusers, homosexuals, fornicators, and the like. The adulterous, the liars, the self-centered, and the self-righteous. You and me. We've been flowing towards God ever since the cross of Christ. We're being drawn by God to God for his glory. Now, God is the one who accomplished this, but he has now made known to us the means of which he wishes to do this. He's calling the nations, but how is he calling the nations? We see it in Romans 10, 13 through 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Brothers and sisters, our God has cast a beautiful vision, one that the more we look into, the more it should begin to create a zeal for his glory. One that will leave these walls and go to the nations. One that will bring the good news of Jesus Christ to them. That the nations will flow to God's holy mountain. God will gather the nations, but his chosen way of doing so is a message. So who will go? Who will carry this message? Who will carry it to the places of the earth where there's no gospel witness at all? Who's going to go where they are resistant to the gospel, where they kill people for speaking of the one true God? Places that are uncomfortable and hard, oppressive and dark. Who will go? And what will sustain them when they get there? What will sustain them when they are persecuted and harassed? 
Their possessions are taken. They are beaten. Or loved ones are murdered. What will sustain them is not a a, a force this morning. It is a vision settled in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. It is a vision for his glory and the good of all peoples. It's something that takes seed in our hearts this morning from God's word and won't let us go. Something that grows until we are uncomfortable and we say they must know this must happen. And we go because we know it will. Or how about this? Who will go to their neighbors, their co-workers, and their family members? Who will go and sacrifice our comfort and relational peace? Who will go and make known to the world around us that there's a God worthy of worship? One that's not afraid of awkward conversations or even though afraid will press on. They will risk loss of income and raises. It'll be those who hold fast to this vision. One that sees what is in Scripture like Jesus did and looks at the world around them and says, it is not there, and it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And that zeal will propel us forward to say, Jesus saves. Mm -hmm. And we will go to them. So church, let us proclaim the gospel. Let us live like the kingdom is coming, because it is. And let us do righteousness and keep justice. I want to pray. And like I said, I'm going to hijack ministry time. I don't know how this works, but I'm going to do it anyways. Uh, if you are like me and, and, and you're finding that you want to make excuses not to do those things, you look at scripture, even you look at this passage, you just say, I'm not, I'm not feeling any zeal for God's glory or the good of all peoples. Well, one, maybe I just didn't preach well. But two, maybe there's something in your hands. There's an idol of, of self and comfort, even maybe your family. And just, I just want to make sure I give them the best, and what is best for them may not be what God says. Where we try to take control of our lives. We try to make ourselves safe and comfortable. If you're like that, then what I'm going to do, I'm going to invite, can the whole church just stand up? I'm calling an audible, Tim style. All right? And, and, and if you're aware of that, you're aware of that propensity in your soul or you think it might be there, then I'm just going to ask you to do this. Would you just raise your hands like this with hands open? And there's nothing magical that's going to happen when you do this, but I want us to put us in a posture of surrender. I want us to raise our hands before God and say, I want my hands to be empty before you. I want to look into your word and let you lead me. I don't want you to bow to me, God. I want to bow to you. And if you're around someone like this and and your hands are not up, put your hand on them and pray for them. And if it's your spouse, just put your hands up too because it's in your household. And and let's just surrender it together. And I'm going to pray right now. Oh God Almighty. Oh maker of heaven and earth. You are worthy. You are worthy of the nations. And you are worthy of us gathered here today. You are worthy not of parts of my life. You are worthy of it all. And I want to submit to you right now. Lord, would you take the weak, small idols in our hands and we'd before you. And would you replace it with a view of heaven. A view of you. 
And would it not let us go? God, would your word take hold of us today and never let us go? Would this vision grow in our lives? Oh, Lord, would we go? Lord, would we have a zeal like you, Jesus? We look at the world around us, and it's not matching up to Isaiah 56. Let our hearts not be content. Would it go and say, this must happen. I must go. It's me, Lord. Take me. Send me. Lord, whether it's my coworker, my neighbor, my family, or to a nation where they hate you, Lord, will you just lead me? I'm done trying to control everything. I'm done trying to protect everything. Lord, I surrender because you are worthy. Oh, Lord, you're not safe, but you're good. And so, Lord, as a church, Lord, would something start here today? Would we see a vision, an ancient vision of old? And Lord, would you stir up a zeal in this local church for your glory and the good of all peoples? And Lord, we ask this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen.